Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Three out of four people on Facebook in the U.S. have a friend who likes Upworthy. So if everyone who likes Upworthy on Facebook shared, we'd reach three-quarters of the population. When we think about who we're speaking to, we're thinking about that, that very, very broad most of the country audience. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Eli Pariser and Peter Keckley, the co-founders of Upworthy. Guys, Upworthy has been described as the fastest growing media property in the history of the universe. Your parents must be very proud. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. But tell me a little bit more about what exactly Upworthy is for those in the audience who don't know, for those in the audience who don't check, uh, check Facebook, for example. People who live uh, in cabins in the woods. <laughs> um, Upworthy is a mission-driven media company that uh, set out to try to get as really important topics to go viral just as much as a video of somebody jumping on their bed and then falling out the window, Ken. And uh, is Peter just making things up? Is that roughly your review as well? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we really uh, saw this uh, uh, challenge in the new media landscape where um, you know, it used to be that content about topics that really are socially or politically important um, had its own special place. It had you know, newspaper front pages. It had the head of the evening newscast. And so even if it wasn't the most sort of uh, compelling or the most clicked on or the most shared, um, you know, it would get attention anyway. And now all of that stuff, ha you know, has to compete in the same pool with Kim Kardashian and, uh, you know, pictures of lunch and everything else. It's all just in one news feed all mixed together. And so, you know, I think part of the reason we started the company was how do we actually help uh, these little bits of content about climate change or income inequality or other sort of uh, bigger topics um, kind of surface in this very fast-moving stream. So were you looking to entrepreneurship and media for a long time? Is this something you'd cared about for a long time, or is this something that you came to later in life? Um, I mean, I, I started out in comedy. I started, uh, I started my first comedy newspaper when I was in seventh grade and my first halfway decent one when I was in tenth grade. Uh, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, where The Onion is from, and it was just kind of in the water uh, that, like, if you wanted to do a weird side project, you, like, didn't start a band. You started a comedy newspaper. So uh, that's how I got interested in sort of satirical journalism. Um, that led me to The Onion. I always kind of bounced back and forth between 
the sort of more social issues and political activism side of things, and then the media side of things. Um, so I ended up at MoveOn.org uh, for a while, which is where Eli and I first worked together. And we created Upworthy because I kind of was sick of bouncing back and forth and wanted to combine the best of both. Um, and, uh, and with Upworthy, we kind of have like media, but about social issues that matter. Eli, tell me about your experience with MoveOn. I know that it was something that was very central to your, to your early life. Yeah, no, I, that was kind of uh, my first job out of college, basically, uh, was uh, I had started an uh, online, uh, you know, kind of petition about multilateralism after 9-11. And uh, it got, uh, you know, sort of, as a 20-year-old sitting in my pajamas at my computer, all of a sudden I was in touch with half a million people. And it was just a petition so, suggesting that the United States work with other countries and yeah, it was basically calling for a sort of multilateral response to you know to the terrorist attacks. Basically, mm -hmm. how do we like use this opportunity to bring people together around a common threat? And so uh, you know, I, I kind of got linked up with Move On, and um, I'd always been really excited about the question of kind of how do you leverage uh, the web technology to help make democracy work better. Um, and that was really the most exciting thing to me about being at MoveOn uh, was you know, getting to play with that and try to figure out like, are there ways that you can use technology to, to make people more engaged. And you know, part of the ethos, if you remember back to you know, the early 2000s, there was kind of the sense that um, technology in and of itself was also gonna have these sort of radically uh, empowering effects and uh, once the internet revolution was over, every single person would have a voice and be more powerful and be able to create big, large amounts of change. And um, when I got kind of to the end of my time at MoveOn and decided to kind of step back from the day to day, I was really thinking about this question of like, is that actually true? You know, can we look around and say honestly that most people have more power than they did 10 years ago? Uh, or, or are more influential or are, you know, sort of more engaged. And um, I felt like, no, actually sort of the, the way the internet uh, was developing wasn't necessarily sort of bending toward any big, uh, you know, uh, mass empowerment. It was just, uh, you know, it was becoming commercialized and there were, you know, these other, other aspects. But so, you know, part of my concern was that, um, you know, really to have uh, a functioning democracy, you have to have, uh, you know, people have to actually know what's going on. And I got concerned about, you know, whether uh, the information systems that we had were actually helping to get people more informed or actually just making it easier to tune out entirely. Peter, one thing I wonder about is you were in the world of satirical journalism. And when you think about satire, you think about irony, you think about detachment, you think about cynicism, you think about seeing through hierarchies and structures of power. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily something that makes you active and engaged. Sometimes it's something that makes you very distrustful of people who are telling you to get active and engaged, right? I mean, how does one go from satire to activism? It's a great question. I think, uh, I mean, the way I think about it is, Satire has a bunch of uses. Um, one of them is a one of them overlaps heavily with a sort of activist world of it's a way to speak truth to power uh, in a very blatant like form that is palatable because it's humorous. Um, another is like I, I think that 
at the Onion, we would say like the 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 motto was "Tu stultest est." You are dumb, and like the goal was to look for stupidity everywhere, and we never uh, ran out of it, <laughs> and we're never anywhere close. So I think that there is there is a, a great tradition in satire of pointing out stupidity and and tearing down those in power um, who uh, are just behaving terribly. I think that there's also like. Uh, it also punctures false hope or just Pollyannish idealism. Um, and uh, I think that's a really good thing to do in the world, too. I think that the, you know, the through line for me has been I was interested in politics and satire is a way to express that interest in a way that reaches beyond the narrow insular world of people that are obsessed about it every day. Um, so I think like there's a different group of people that read The Onion or that watch The Daily Show and learn about politics than there are that read Politico or like these, these insular DC outlets. And so. Uh, yeah, this is sort of, I mean, th this is the thing that we've, we've uh, you know, seen with The Daily Show also, right? Which is, uh, you know, starts as a sort of meta layer on top of the news and then becomes uh, for a big chunk of people like the way that they get their news. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I don't think the onion necessarily meant to be that vehicle, but it probably mm -hmm. actually introduced. What people responsibilities to does that create as well for these institutions? There was this fascinating study from these analysts at Microsoft Research that I imagined you guys saw. Yeah. And what they did for the folks in the audience is uh, they basically looked at the browsing habits of about 1.2 million people who use the Internet Explorer browser. So not necessarily a totally representative sample, but pretty useful. And they tried to identify active news consumers. Uh, they found that, uh, you know, they defined it as 10 people who read substantive news articles and also two opinion articles in a month. So Very relatively nice. generous. Uh, and they found there was only 4% of these browser users who were active news consumers. If you subtract out the opinion pieces, it goes up to 14%. So 14%, not that bad. But actually a lot lower. It's <laughs> pretty a, bad. A, well, 14%, but 86%. A, lot, a lot lower than uh, people self-report in surveys. Like totally. in surveys you'd find, uh, you know, from Pew, you find people say about 39% say I'm an active news consumer, et cetera. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who, for example, know who Edward Snowden is. So, I mean, I wonder if it's only 14% of people, let's say, who are, you know, reading substantive news articles, they're reading the front page of the paper or, or you know, kind of some other news source. How is it that people know about stuff at all? Like, how does that actually happen? <laughs> I mean, I'm curious. So, That's, and you guys obviously think about this very deeply. So, like, wh what are the ways that people find stuff? I mean, so so there's a couple of questions there. I mean, and and to say it, it's even worse than what you said. It's it's uh, ten news articles and two opinion pieces over three months. That was the and and only four only four percent of people that they found over three months uh, consumed that much uh, information. A lot of people say, well, it's Internet Explorer. Um, maybe Internet Explorer people just suck. Uh, and and I and I would say you could argue it both ways because actually we love people who use plausibly, all browsers. That's true. I feel the same way. Um, also, maybe Internet Explorer people are older and therefore consume news more than right. Other, you would think other so, browsers. If anything, yeah. So uh, I think it's probably a pretty good snapshot of the kind of bleak situation uh, for for news content online. And I think it's because you know uh, uh, the amount of available content is skyrocketing the amount of available attention per person is utterly constant. 
And so the competition for people's attention gets fiercer every day. Well, the quality of and entertainment options is so much higher now totally, than it's been in the past. Yeah. It's immersive, interactive. Yeah. Right. So, so you know, news has to be incredibly compelling in order to uh, actually actually reach people. And um, I also think it's worth distinguishing, though, between um, it has to be compelling, and it hasn't had to be compelling. Yeah. For, the, for the last 40 years, there was an automatic, easy way to get people to pay attention to news. It was on the front page. It was in the newscast. And so, so when I think, like, were quasi-monopolies, when you only had a handful of broadcast networks, you have very few options as to what you can do. So we don't have to be compelling. Right. And it's really up to us. We're pleasing ourselves as the right. news producers to kind of give you whatever we want to give you. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't read it, it's because the people today are so apathetic, and they're, they're tuning out, and they don't actually care what matters and they only care about celebrities. Like, I think that's a false read on, on the news, and I think for, for too long, news has gotten just a little bit... I mean, there's a lot of great news out there and a lot of great people doing really excellent work, but there's, a, a general, there's been a general trend toward news being lazy and, and dispiriting, and you like read the news every morning and you end up feeling like you just want to go back to bed afterwards like rather than start your day. And so I think that... Uh, I think it's a really exciting time now because, uh, I mean, we think that news just needs to compete uh, with all of the most exciting entertainment stuff, all the most exciting sports, everything else. In this imperfect world that we live in now, yeah. how are you going from a situation in which this relatively small number of people are actively engaging with the news to the fact that you have a lot of people who have political opinions? You certainly have a lot of people who vote. I mean, you pre one could argue that we don't have as many people as ought to vote who vote, but certainly the number is much larger than the number of people who are active news consumers. So how are people developing their, how are they developing the sources of information that are allowing them to make decisions? Well, I mean, uh, that's a big question. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to vary from you group know, to group, I It'll assume. vary from yeah. group to group. Um, I, I think it's less, uh, it, you know, to me, what the the interesting question is like, how how should it work? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, really in history, there have been these two sort of uh, two two theories of how this should work. One is kind of the the Lipmanite theory that you know basically uh, we should just get a, a small group of really well educated people to figure out what the right position is on all the on the, on all the issues, and then they'll kind of lead the rest of of people. And I think the current information environment we have is pretty well set up for that. And then the other is sort of like the the Dewey, you know, uh, idea that actually, you know, there should be this like uh, it, people should broadly be well informed. And I think there, you know, we're just we don't have media organs that are that are working for that. It's not it's not happening. Uh, and, yeah, and, to, and to build on that, if you are really interested in a topic and if you're a real uh, student of it. Like, the, the world has never been better for finding information. If you want to go out and seek and put even a small amount of work into it, like, you can learn more quicker from more angles. The information like, is free, it's accessible. Yeah, it's just like, it's a flowering in every direction. And the reality is just that most people are not active consumers of things. You know, most people are semi-passive for good and bad reasons. Like, most people have very busy lives, most people just don't have, uh, it's not part of their constitution to be, to be spending 10 hours a week actively learning and searching out uh, all of the latest things. And, it, and so I think the question that we think about a lot and we try to answer is like, those people are good people. There are lots of us. Like it's not like they're a different type of person than we are. Like they're just people with lives who are busy. And so if you're not gonna be like a grad student of the news today, like 
how do you get as much information as possible and how do you get the right signals about what's important in the world? Um, and so we try to break down the barriers to, uh, that people erect for, between them and really useful information. One reason I, I kind of am harping a little bit on the question of how are people getting their news now or how are people developing these opinions is that I think about this a lot too and I think part of it's identity driven. People have an idea of who they are and who they're aligned with. And so to some degree I figure out by taking cues from other people kind of this you know, Lippmanite idea you described before. These are people I trust. I'm going to roughly go with whatever they say. Let's say I like the president or I don't like the president, and that's going to give me cues for how to think about issues X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, yeah, it explains something like 70% of your views or something, of like an average person's yeah, views. Yeah, absolutely, like, absolutely. And, you know, so you in. in a way, it's kind of like, you know, you don't take on that burden. You have other people take on that burden to figure these things out, and you can kind of, you know, go from there. But also the way that there is kind of news content that bleeds into many other things as well, you know, kind of many other forms of entertainment that have a kind of implicit message uh, that, you know, if you're this kind of person, you're likely to believe this kind of thing. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like that stuff is actually quite present in many other forms of media, many other forms of content. It is, total. I mean, Orange is the New Black, mm -hmm. you know, uh, definitely raises a whole bunch of questions about prisons and, you know. Even by humanizing or, people or whatever else. Totally, you know. yeah. And, and actually, there's some fascinating studies about uh, people are sort of more thoughtful and more engaged thinking through these kinds of moral or social dilemmas in a fictional universe than in, a, than in the real universe. Uh, you know, because um, in a story, you can assert, uh, like there's this great study about the death penalty where, you know, first they showed people uh, of two different groups uh, you know, people who are for the death penalty and people who are against, they showed them sort of rigorous studies about the efficacy of the death penalty, the, the likelihood that you were going to be um, killing someone who was innocent, all of this kind of stuff. Totally did nothing to, uh, you know, to change either group's views, actually. Um, and then they uh, had folks watch this story uh, of a, a TV program, um, which was about a guy who definitely didn't do it and definitely was convicted. And uh, that was a much more compelling universe to reason this stuff out in because, partly because you could assert like, no, he really didn't do it, we know that. It wasn't a problem with the criminal, criminal justice system or something. Um, but, but I think you know, stories definitely provide this way into engaging with um, these topics that are, that's, that's more rich than just the kind of color wars I believe this because that's what my political affiliation thing is. But the one other thing I want to talk about, though, is, um, you know, I think there's a question of what is your opinion about X or Y, um, and that's an important question. But I think you, the, the the bigger thing that media does uh, is uh, it's called the agenda setting function in the research. It's it's the ability to say like this is what we kind of as a as a nation, as a hive mind, are going to be talking about this week. This is what we're going to be thinking. This is about even this what week. we're going to debate. Yeah, at all. exactly. These are the issues that are subject to debate. Yeah, and um, what fascinates me is the way that that's uh, shifting or could potential shift, and uh, the way that social media, in particular, you know, might be able to play a role in that. So, what does it what does it look like when instead of um, you know, a few specific newspapers deciding like, okay, the topic of the week is the deficit. You know, what does it look like when uh, people's attention is driven by what they're seeing in social feeds? And that may raise up very different issues than sort of what uh, 
what you know sort of the old media wanted to set as the agenda. There's a kind of narrower elite conversation. You might allow things to bubble up that then get on the agenda that wouldn't have been otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen any examples of that in the course of your yeah, life so, as an activist? I mean, even just at Upworthy, we, mm-hmm. over, we started out with an editorial mission where um, we hired just a few curators and gave them some extraordinarily basic tools and said, why don't you look around and see what's on the internet and find anything that you think would make the world a better place if a million people saw it. That was our the equivalent of our news beats. We didn't have like a city beat and a world beat or whatever. We had just follow your passion, see what you think is important and interesting. Um, and then we looked at what people responded to. We looked at what got uh, a whole bunch of attention, what people were really excited about uh, sharing. Um, one of the things that like that seems relatively obvious in retrospect, but that wouldn't have probably been on our list of beats if we had made one, was uh, women's body image in the media. Um, we've seen just a massive amount of interest in uh, the standards of beauty, the beauty industry, the 13-year-old girls reading magazines and learning to hate themselves before they like learn to drive. All like that whole suite of issues, which I mean, any woman who's watching this like <laughs> is laughing at me for not knowing that that is one of the major issues in the country, but. Uh, that was a thing that we learned from actually like listening to our community and seeing what really connected. And that's, I think, not on uh, the top of the list in, in DC. I wonder about this because there are going to be issues that are going to find a broad audience and maybe spark an important conversation among people that are not necessarily going to be things that lend themselves to legislating. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, so... You've gone from a world in which, you know, move on, a big part of move on's mission was about electing people to office or changing the agenda that, let's say, you know, people on the progressive end of the spectrum uh, are focusing on. Um, do you think of your mission now as being somewhat broader, uh, you know, now having moved from politics to? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so our mission, you know, is to uh, draw massive amounts of attention to the most important topics. And... We feel like, you know, right now we're just doing like a tiny little chunk of what that would really mean. Um, There are lots of topics that we don't cover that we should. There are lots of, you know, sort of stories that we should be telling. But the goal is to build something that actually will, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, help people, um, you know, uh, learn about and get their heads around, um, you know, sort of all of the all of the top things that are that are going on in the world. and uh, to do it without, you know, sort of resorting to posting, uh, you know, celebrity slideshows in order to get people in the door. That's the other pieces we kind of, we feel like we want to just draw a line and say, okay, we've got to do this without any of the tricks that people sometimes do to kind of generate traffic on the theory that then they'll hopefully click over from, you know. Interesting. So you don't want to have things as a gateway drug, thinking that you can then get people to care about the things that you think they ought to care more about or pay more attention to things they ought to be. We're, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. there are gateway drugs. There are you know, very uh, salient pieces of, of content that are, you know, they're, they're meaningful, but they're not the most amazing deep So recently dive. Ellen Page, uh, uh, you know, kind of a very well-known yeah. actor, uh, came out of the closet uh, at, a, uh, at a conference. So the idea is that Someone who might not be interested in this issue otherwise will be interested because she's a celebrity, she's appeared in the X-Men films, et cetera. So is that kind of what you have in mind? Yeah, totally. I, I mean, the, the idea is just that uh, we expect that um, if we can bring folks in on uh, something like that, 
that we can then show them, okay, and here's some more interesting, somewhat more substantive or thoughtful um, you know, conversations about, about these kinds of topics as well. Um, but we also feel like uh, there's a um, bias in, uh, among people who care about uh, drawing attention to important topics. Uh, you know, a lot of us, and I, I'm certainly sort of instinctually one of them, are still sort of pure enlightenment rationalists. We really think that all of us sh should be persuaded by facts and by sort of a series of bullet points that present a good argument. And um, I think what we know from the last 50 years of, of psychology is that's not how people uh, internalize things. That's not how we learn. That's not how we uh, come to care about uh, topics or even understand them. And that emotion and storytelling are a big piece of how that actually happens. And so to us, we don't kind of uh, look down our nose at something which is really emotionally compelling, but not that factual because we know that, or not, not uh, factually dense, uh, because we know that uh, uh, that's actually the way. You know, if you talk to people about, um, you know, what got you passionate about, uh, about something that you're, uh, an issue that you're passionate about, you know, it's rarely a white paper. And it's more often, you know, I read To Kill a Mockingbird, or uh, I saw this movie and it totally blew me away. Or something happened to the cousin of a friend of mine. Or totally, something like that. right. Yeah. And yeah. so this is how people come to care about things and, and to place them high on their personal agenda. This is what I find potentially terrifying about what you guys are doing. Because <laughs> it seems to me as though you guys, coming from the world of political activism, have a great sophistication about narrative. And... It also seems that human beings are fundamentally animals that think in narrative terms. You see a bunch of random events that happen. She didn't call me, something like that. And then you kind of tell an elaborate story as to why that happened. Our brains gravitate towards this kind of story. Our, our brains gravitate toward causal stories as well, even if there aren't real causal chains. You know what I mean? So it seems as though people who are very good at telling compelling stories in this world, in which, as you say, we're competing with other forms of entertainment and whatever else, <laughs> that now the people who will win political arguments will always be the people who are able to tell compelling, fun, satisfying stories. But don't you think that was always the way it was? I mean, when was that not the case? Yeah, I think you're probably right. Although the question now is, is it kind of supercharged? Is you know, the fact that we're in this much more competitive landscape, does that mean that uh, you know, now I guess everyone's going to have to learn to be a much better storyteller than had been the case in the past. I mean, I think it, com it also comes down to trust. And, um, you know, there are well, But does there that make sense to you guys, you just sort of that... just initially, just this idea that actually there's a much higher premium on storytelling now than there might have been in the past and compelling storytelling? I mean, I think the terrifying point makes, <laughs> like, actually finds more purchase than the other. <laughs> like, I don't think it's that different than it was 50 years ago. I do think... I do think it's supercharged, and I do think, uh, like, the people, people who are great storytellers, it's a like it's a powerful skill, and it can be used for good or ill. Like, mm -hmm. and I think that that's very, very, very true. So I think that, and, and, and right like, now, like, it's being used for night a it's lot for, yeah. for marketing. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, like shampoo, and uh, not very much for 
uh, engaging people and what's going on with income inequality. Yeah, like yeah. that's the disparity that It that is exists. kind of fascinating because yeah. when, you, when people often talk, for example, about the amount of money that is spent on American politics, something you guys know a lot about, yeah. yet it's incredible because when you look at the amount of money that's spent getting people to eat for example, flavored chips yeah. uh, made out of you know high fructose corn syrup or whatever else. The amounts of money are actually actually way bigger in terms of marketing products in almost any one of these little categories than in marketing political ideas. Yeah. So I mean, that's. For, am I right in thinking that's true? I, th I think I am. But I mean, and if that's the case, then is what we're going to see just kind of, you know, as people come to appreciate the importance of political ideas, are is it just kind of natural? Because people seem to say. It's terrible that we have money in politics, et cetera. But it seems that, like, how could you not, given how much money we spend selling shampoo? Yeah, I don't know what it's going to do to the flow of money. I do think that the I do think that the the best minds of our generation, as far as storytelling and uh, and persuasion, are definitely not focused on the right things. And I would much rather have them be focused on how do we get everyone talking about income inequality? How do we get everyone talking about like racial justice? Like. If if we had half of the if we had one one hundredth of the money being spent on shampoo that or on that that we do have on shampoo, I think it would just be such a more rich and vibrant public space. Do you see that changing? Do you see more resources going into this kind of idea space? I mean, I think you know to to some degree that's what's behind you know the rise of uh, all sorts of experiments with this. Vice is you know doing its HBO show, which is kind of a different twist on the same idea, right? Compelling stories as a way into foreign, you know, foreign interest news. Same basic concept. And I think, uh, you know, clearly there's something there. Uh, and, and you see a bunch of brands that are getting into, like, using their marketing budgets to engage in public debates, or sort of like Dove or Pantene are doing this on the, on the body image and beauty, uh, standards of beauty, where they're not just saying, They've, they've, they're running fewer ads that say, you're ugly and flawed and only getting worse and therefore you should buy our product. Yeah. And like slightly more saying, here are some of like the gender discrimination things that happen in the workplace. Like that's an ad that Pantene ran this year that they wouldn't have run five years ago. So I think that's happening a little bit. I think, I, 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 I don't trust the general, that general world to start massively investing in, in the world of ideas as like their big business strategy for yeah. the next generation, but I do think you see it in little places, and I love it when I see it. I do feel like there's this little tension here, um, and obviously it's not something that any, one, any individual is accountable for, but it's this interesting tension between the power that you guys have identified in compelling storytelling to drive agendas and to drive how people think about larger issues, and the discomfort many people have with, for example, things like campaign spending. And it's possible that maybe we are not going to see this money translated into campaign spending as such, but it does seem as though, as we're seeing how powerful it is crafting compelling stories to change people's minds, it seems that if you're a politician, changing people's minds is an incredibly difficult thing to do, right? So you know, if we found this way to do that, it seems almost inevitable that you're going to see more resources poured into that. I mean, I, I can't... Uh... I haven't been paying attention a lot to what's going on on the, you know, on the political the side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, it, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, the, the, the piece of, of what you're talking about that I think may be a little bit over, overreaching is um, the, the check that this kind of media has on it that most media doesn't is that uh, you know, stuff that we put out 
only succeeds in as much as people are willing to share it with all of their friends. And um, that's a really interesting kind of gauntlet that it has to run, where we're literally not successful uh, unless we can get tens or hundreds of thousands of people to say, like, this is something I'm proud to put out in front of my friends because uh, it speaks to something I believe in. And um, that's also tricky because, uh, as we know, you know, while friend groups tend to be somewhat homogenous, they're not completely homogenous. Right. And there's uh, always the risk of alienating someone. Yeah. I mean, and uh, and so I think the the upside to what this could look like is instead of having a world where we're doing kind of um, vicious political takedown ads, which if you think about it, you know, sort of no one would willingly subject themselves to. Like uh, I say this as someone who at one time in my career ran, you know, political ads, but, but you would never choose to sit down and like pop in a DVD of 30 ads and run it. Um, if, if the dynamics are now that you have to say something that a lot of people are willing to uh, share with people who might disagree, um, it really kind of changes the tone. It changes the way that people relate politically. And maybe it encourages people to um, talk in a way that's less uh, about, uh, you know, damning the other side and more about um, what they stand for, what good things you know their candidates might might agree on. So I think um, when I think about sort of the the media, the online media over the last uh, ten years, you know, I think you and I and Peter, you know, we we started paying attention to, to all of this uh, when it was you know sort of the blogosphere was was the main way that ideas got traction online, and the way that that worked was you wrote something so ridiculously incendiary that someone else had to respond with a takedown argument who then, and they then drew, drove you traffic, and ideally it was someone with a much bigger blog than you. Uh, and, and that was kind of how you got traction online. Um, to me, you know, a world in which instead of having to sort of bait someone into a really over-the-top argument, you have to make an argument that a lot of people want to share that's actually like a pretty good uh, information environment, or it's a, it's, a, it's a step in the right direction. So as someone who comes from the world of satire, I wonder how you feel about content that's really earnest and uplifting. Uh, does it, uh, are, are you happy to be associated with it, or do you kind of feel? <laughs> are you ashamed, Peter? <laughs> deeply, deeply ashamed. Um, I mean, I think the, the, having been in the rooms of, like, in comedy rooms, it's a, it's a mix of people that are very hard-edged and very soft-hearted. Like there's a there's a deep vulnerability that comes from I mean lots of lots of people in comedy are are in comedy because they are hurting and because they like see the world a little more clearly than other people and that's generally unpleasant. Um, and comedy is a way to like to process that and share that with the world, but it's not, but it's not that like I think there's an image sometimes of comedy where it's like, oh, you know that jerk from the lunchroom in like middle school, like he was always making fun of people, so that's what comedy people are like. And it's like, no, the comedy person was the one like being made fun of in the corner and learning how to fight back over time with their like superior wit. So there's there's a lot of earnestness within comedy. It's covered by layers of craft. Um, so I think that like the I mean the overlap between my upworthy world and my onion world is is somewhat limited. <laughs> like there is uh, there's a lot that doesn't overlap. Um, 
you know, I think Upworthy is definitely much more sincere and much more earnest and much happier to be so um, than The Onion was. But when Jon Stewart looks at the camera and speaks to camera, which he does every couple weeks, like, he is no more sincere, like, he is no, he is just as sincere as something would be on Upworthy. One thing I wonder about is, because you guys clearly are driven by a sense of mission, and sometimes, you know, there are things you want to spread, there are ideas that you want to spread that might cut against people's prejudices. Mm -hmm. Yet when you're thinking about the kind of things that people might share, my instinct, and it could be wrong, and tell me if I'm wrong, is you're gonna share things that reflect your prejudices and that, generally speaking, in your social network, they're gonna reflect the prejudices of people in your social network. And so it's gotta be difficult to get people to share content or to think about content or to confront content that actually cuts against those gut instincts we have that we've cultivated, that we've developed, you know what I mean, uh, among friends? I mean, the, the thing about that is that, uh, it, you know, people will love to be surprised and uh, to, to, to find out what's really going on. We had a video uh, that, that uh, went uh, highly viral that was a deconstruction of the U.S. healthcare system and kind of here's how the costs are all breaking out. It was John Green, you know, taking people through it. Um, it wasn't particularly ideological. It doesn't fall neatly in a, like, here's what Republicans think about Obamacare. Here's what Democrats think about Obamacare thing. It was actually just taking people through, like, here's what's actually going on. And I think a lot of people shared that because um, it didn't totally reflect. It was surprising to them. It was informative. It felt like, ah, finally, someone's actually just walking me through what's going on here. Um, and uh, people love that. You know, people, I, I think, uh, in fact, there's a whole industry of, uh, websites that just sort of they just explain they just explain and and give you kind of like the counterintuitive take on here's what you think is going on and here's what mm. is actually going on. So uh, I think it's a very I, I don't think it actually just has to be you know sort of reinforcing. I think people often share when they say like I had no idea, and now I'm, I, I want other people to have that experience of like having that aha moment. Mm -hmm. Is that your that's your sense as well? Yeah, I think that the, I think that people, I mean, I think an interesting thing coming from Move On and then and then landing it upworthy and thinking about how to share ideas. Like, I think, just to to build off what Eli was saying earlier, the the dynamics of what get people to click something in an email or donate after watching an ad are just totally different than what leads you to share. And I think that partly what, because it's a is it because it's a bigger ask to get someone to donate than it is to share. Although I guess getting to share is also a pretty big ask it, it matters. It matters whether it's private or public. Uh -huh. I think that's the bigger distinction. And, and when you think about things that get a lot of clicks and things that get a lot of shares, they're quite different. And so we've learned over time which things get a lot of both. Um, I think there are certain hot button issues that are the sort that, like we've seen some traction with uh, issues around reproductive rights, around abortion or pro-life, that sort of stuff. That, but we found that when people share those things, and we've had a number of things that have been highly shareable, they're sharing the real personal stories at the heart of it um, that are the sort where, like, that's a debate that when it's had in Washington or when it's had between, like, partisan political people, both sides tune out from the absolute first second. And it's actually a... a, a an issue where there's a lot of shared ground and overlap in the middle when you actually get people talking heart to heart about it. Um, so we found that in that case, if you're trying to run, write a fundraising email about 
uh, about the general issues of abortion, you write it in a way where people are very worried about losing their right and very worried about this encroaching other side. When you're making a shareable video that speaks to it, you actually get to the heart of the matter and the real human stories. And that's something that you can share with somebody that disagrees with it um, from either side and actually get to some common ground. So activating people's fear is a good way to get them to donate, whereas uh, activating some different sense is something that gets people to share? I mean, maybe that's too crude, but does that? Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's fear or uh, a sense of opportunity. There's lots of things that get people to donate, but I think, um, you know, sharing is about starting a conversation and generally, uh, especially if you're gonna be starting a conversation with you know, your old middle school friends and your colleagues and your boss and uh, all of your friends now, like you wanna have a way in that actually starts that conversation but that does it in a gentle way. And so I think um, that's, you know, a lot of the most shareable stuff has, has those traits. It feels like on the one hand, this is actually saying enough that it will start something interesting or lead to something interesting. And on the other, it's not so aggressive or shrill or obnoxious that everyone's just gonna be like, ah, shut up. So do you find that there's a group of people who are consistently sharing your content? Uh, and you know, that, you know, kind of from story to story who kind of really follow you guys, who trust your brand and, uh, and that's the seed of it or is it not quite? Yeah, well we, have, uh, we now have seven million subscribers, so across Facebook and email and Twitter. So we think of that as like our core Upworthy community and we reach 50 million or so people uh, every month. So it's those seven million that are the more frequent sharers sharing out to that, uh, to the wider, the wider public. So uh, the other 40, 50 million, those are people who um, you know, will vary from month to month. You're yeah. actually engaging this much bigger community of people because that the rest is a kind of changing cast constantly. Right. Yeah. Tell me about, um, when did you guys first start thinking about the idea of viral content and virality? Was it when you were kind of in the activist world or was it something that came to you later? My, I mean, I had some experience with things going viral before I was before that was really... When you were in middle school. When, uh, <laughs> um, my first viral video was in college. I started this group called Pronks Group, um, uh, which is fake German for pranks group. Um, and we made these like, uh, I've gone back and forth between politics and, I mean, between activism and comedy and also between earnestness and satire. This was actually like the most earnest set of pranks that you've ever seen. I was also like making musical theater at the time. So we had a series of pranks taking place on the Columbia campus where it would be uh, like a student uh, standing up in the middle of a huge general chemistry lecture and singing a two and a half minute song, like bursting into song to the professor, which we did in real time, like in front of an unsuspecting professor. So I had a couple of videos uh, from that group uh, get more than a million views before, before YouTube existed. It was back when we were like transcoding into like six different formats and if you're on Windows Media or Real Audio or whatever. Like, so that was my first experience with things really just like uh, taking off and going viral. I remember we looked at the like log charts once and we saw that we'd used like more than 50% of all of Columbia University's <laughs> I'm bandwidth. Sure, I'm sure the IT people at Columbia were delighted by this. That's, very, amazing. Yeah. that's actually how, how uh, we first met was uh, I saw one of those videos uh, and 
Um, was Prong's group that, the original name for Upworthy? Was <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely like an early riff on the idea, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, no, and and I think for both of us, you know, over over the years, I mean, the the thing that's exciting about highly shareable content is that it's really one of the very few ways to reach a really large audience without having like a hundred million dollars. Like the main way you reach a really large audience in the United States is you pay for TV ads and we can't pay for TV ads. So, uh, you know, or you have a hit TV show and as of yet, we do not have a hit TV show. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so the other way that you can get, you know, 20 million people to tune into something is by finding, you know, the perfect, uh, the perfect piece of content or creating the perfect piece of content. And um, that seems like a good shot, you know, that seems like. You, and you also used email marketing in the past, earlier in your career, to kind of get things to go viral as well. Yet it seems that, you know, that's fallen by the wayside. So is your view that kind of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter are just way, way better than email in terms of getting things no, to spread? We, we still we still love email. Uh -huh. We still think email is a uh, very uh, undervalued resource in the world. Everyone thinks that, that everything is about uh, social media, but actually social media is heavily driven by email. Something like one out of three emails sent is sent is a like Facebook reminding you to go check Facebook. <laughs> like so, it's uh, it's it's like the stats are actually pretty shocking. Um, so yeah, but we're still, still big fans. Of... It's a big it's a big part of our story. We have a couple million so how people. Much, on. So how much of uh, kind of upworthy success can be tied to people sharing via email rather than via social networks? Well, I mean, it's it's a big chunk. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of the traffic is non uh, Facebook traffic, and we don't actually know. It's called they call it dark social. You don't know if it's email or people IMing stuff to each other or Snapchatting or whatever. Uh, but uh, you know, but but there's a big chunk of of traffic that shows up. So the way people are measuring, people are focusing on Facebook and Twitter because it's easier to measure, but there's all totally. this other stuff that's harder to measure that can't be captured. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit more about um, this kind of business of virality. And you know, you guys have one kind of business model. There are a lot of other business models out there. Uh, but you know, given the resources that are being devoted in the space, given the, the number of bright people like you guys who are kind of going into it, um, what exactly is so obviously there's a social mission that you can promote, and that's one big benefit from it. But you know, are people making money by spreading content virally as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you want to. Yeah. Um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're uh, not making much money by spreading things virally, as part of the answer. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, uh, I think the the promise is that. Uh, I mean, this is sort of the holy grail for uh, advertisers, for sure. Is um, wouldn't it be great if instead of uh, spending, you know, a hundred million dollars, uh, I could do one of those Old Spice ads and just get people sharing it for free because it's so hilarious or whatever? It's a combination of you know, that and the, the other holy grail of advertising is word of mouth advertising, where everyone knows that that you have to see an ad message like a hundred times to have it be as useful as like. The person next door saying, yeah. like, saying, "I use this, and it, look at how white <laughs> it makes my things, or whatever." Like, um, so I think that like social media is a really cool and very valuable uh, space because it's it's 
like a platform of friend-to-friend -friend referrals. And so I think the difference between uh, working with Upworthy to get your message out versus working with um, you know, a TV network to get your message out is a lot of how it happens if you work with Upworthy is it's somebody sharing directly with a personal friend. Everything is like is endorsed and recommended by somebody else and, and it's just a hugely valuable. And the challenge is, you know, that means that the content has to actually be, you know, there, if, if what you're trying to do is to provide people with something that they want to share, then it has to be really good. And a lot of uh, content that people make to promote their brand or whatever uh, isn't very good. Uh, I think the, the, the promise is that actually there's, there's a win-win here where um, when folks make content that fits our editorial criteria, that it's actually speaking to something bigger and something important, and that speaks to you know, what their company is about, um, that people will then want to share it, and that that is then you know, sort of the best, uh, the best way of building recognition you could hope for. One thing that's really interesting about you guys is that you've attracted really, really enormous audiences, having existed for only a pretty short amount of time. Yet, you've recently been talking about de-emphasizing the importance of just raw numbers. Um, talk to me a bit about that. Uh, you, you're talking about this concept of engagement, and I wonder, you know, what does it mean to be engaged with this kind of content, and why does it matter? So, the way websites measure themselves turn out, turns out to matter a lot. And, and if you're ever on the internet wondering why the internet is misshapen in the ways that it's variously misshapen, like a lot of it can be traced back to how, how websites are making money and how they're measuring themselves. So every time you land on an article that's broken into a 22-page slideshow where each slide of the slideshow is one sentence and the same photo or something like that, what you're seeing there is websites are paid. There's a few things I hate more than that. Right. There's a few things that anyone hates. Um, what you're seeing there is, is websites that are paid by the page view increasing the number of page views that somebody visits each time. So it's not a better experience for the user. It's not more, it's not deeper understanding of the issue. It is simply a way to say, here's the stat that we're being measured on. How can we juke the stats? So what we've been interested in from the get-go was uh, a measure called unique visitors, which just means how many people came to, how many different people came to your site this month. Um, and we cared about that early on because, uh, because it was just part of our general mission and theory to start a conversation with, with the whole country about these issues, to really affect what millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people are thinking about. And so we felt like it was a really good thing for us to track, and we've grown very quickly by that metric. The thing it doesn't track is... Can you tell us a little bit about how much you've grown? Yeah, we, um, so we started, we launched in March of 2012, so we're a little less than uh, two years old, um, and we're reaching about 50 million people uh, a month, which is um, sort of dramatically more than <laughs> other sites have reached by that time. It, it used to be common for a site like ours to launch and then a year later be reaching a few million people. Um, and there have been some months that are a lot bigger than that. Some months a little bit smaller here yeah. and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, but it's been a, it's been a pretty, it's been one of these sort of charts. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been really fun, and we feel like it's fun to watch, and it speaks to our core mission. So we've we've felt good about it so far. What we're excited about now is kind of answering the next question of like, so you reached 50 million people. How much time did they actually spend? How often did they come back? Um, 
how, how much of their attention are you getting? Our, our core mission is to draw massive amounts of attention. So we wanted a metric that actually keeps us honest to that mission. Uh, that says, okay, like you're trying to draw attention, how much attention did you draw? So we just um, launched this metric called attention minutes, which is just how many minutes of attention did you get from your audience? And if you look at the attention minutes of, uh, of like a TV channel, it's, it, it's just this huge number. People spend so many hours watching TV. So we're, we're just starting out here and we know we have a huge area to go, but to us it really matters. Like when I think about the times that I've really like grown to understand an issue, really started to care more deeply about an issue, really gotten the context and the like depth on something, it takes more than a couple minutes. And right now Upworthy is doing a very good job of reaching people for a few minutes at a time. And our goal and our aspiration is to reach people for a half an hour or an hour, like give enough time to draw enough context and really like get people to engage with issues enough to, to open their hearts to things and change their minds. When I think of a TV show, one of the basic reasons why it's going to draw your attention for a sustained period of time is that that's the unit. I mean, it's constructed in such a way that to fully get the plot, to get the resolution, et cetera, you've got to be with it for this kind of, you know, let's say half hour or an hour. Um, whereas with a lot of viral content, I mean, part of the way that it gets you to be a, a unique visitor is by being pretty quick having a pretty low barrier to entry. Um, and you know, they, they kind of suck you in that way. I've watched this video for X number of minutes. And, you know, now I can go on to something else. So you kind of break it up into easily digestible units. But if your goal is to increase engagement, how, how do you go about doing that? Because it seems like these are a little bit different competencies. They, uh, I mean, I think you just think about it in the way that a storyteller would think about it. And so when we find a video and, and on the video length question, we've actually found our, our number one video ever was 20 minutes long um, about this guy Zach Sobiech's uh, struggle with cancer. And it's this incredibly well-made documentary by Soul Pancake uh, about this guy's story. And so we've actually found that it's not the shorter the better. Anything, it, it has to be very engaging from the very beginning. Like you have to get people's attention right away in order to have it uh, be really shareable. Um, but once you have people's attention and the content remains good, then it can be two minutes or 20 minutes and, and still reach a huge audience. I think that there is a thing where online, you know, you have somebody's attention in a browser window or in your tablet or phone, and they have a million other things they could be doing at that instant. So you're like, the fight for attention and the fight to remain interesting and relevant and like worth the next five seconds of time is serious in a way that it never was for TV. TV, you're sitting down, you're like, you've just had a long day, you're watching prime time. It's a totally different use case. In a way, the bar is actually very low for TV to clear because you've already decided yeah. that I'm gonna engage with this kind of content and right. that's why people flip around. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, there's a phrase for it. It's like the minimal, it's like actually like in TV industry talk, it's like, <laughs> Basically, what's the minimum we need to do to, to not have people channel. change the channel? <laughs> and that's like the that's the metric. Whereas for uh, you guys, I, that threshold is a lot higher because it's so easy and there's so much other fun, engaging content. Totally. So and you already have your hands on the keyboard. You're already you're already so close you're to poised. leaving. You're ready yeah. to go. And so when when we think about how to deepen the experience, I think it is a it's it's a really fun question because you do have to think like, okay, I just watched, I, somebody just watched this four minute video um, about income inequality and now they see these charts that are in there and it's really striking. Their impulse now is to close the window and leave. So how do we get them to not only not close the window and leave, but say, 
oh, here's an interesting counterpoint. Here's like, here's what that video got wrong, or here's like the broader context, or here's somebody's particular story. Like, what's the next thing that somebody wants to do? And then what's the next thing they want to do after that? It's 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 going to be a whole series of choices that we're going to need to understand. Like, what is that? What is that video? What does that infographic leave you with? And what do we? And how do we fill in that gap? So it's a much more. We think of ourselves as curators, and we think about curating the internet for our community. But we're going to be curating the actual, like a much longer experience. So it's like a a, a tour guide to a, a conceptual idea, or like if you never understood environmental conservation or whatever, like. Here's the first thing you just saw. Here's really what you should watch next. It's like having a great friend who's like, oh, you just read this book. Here, read this book. Well, that also gets to some of that concern about the way that narratives can be a little too slick and a little too easy. I mean, if part of the way to keep people engaged is to actually challenge yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, that, okay. oh, please. I mean, the, 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 one other, uh, the one other piece here is, um, you know, back to your question of, of engagement and, uh, you know, and, and, and where that leads us. Um, you know, I think there's uh, uh, totally lost my train of thought here. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to it. Oh yeah, sure. Um, trying to think. I think I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, where do you imagine? Where do you see Upworthy being in ten years? Um, I want to have a satellite, like a orbiting, yeah, a orbiting, a orbiting idea. the world. Yeah. Oh, would it be the kind of satellite that would vaporize people from space, or would it be more like it, a it friendly vibe multi. satellite? Well, let's see. It would. Uh, it would definitely be a satellite that we could escape on. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's. A, it, it, we we really don't uh, believe in um, trying to. <laughs> Sorry, everything's going <laughs> so wrong. This interview is unraveling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we really don't <laughs> don't believe in. Um, you know, in trying to get too fancy about predicting the future of media. And, and uh, really what we want to do is um, build something that um, looks at where people are, um, you know, spending their time and spending their attention and how do we go there and how do we be there. And so um, if the Apple TV information economy takes off, you know, we'll want to have a really good Apple TV channel. If, um, you know, people are doing Google Glass augmented reality shows, you know, we'll want to be doing that. Uh, but it's really about kind of like looking at where are people and how do we go out to them. And it, I think this is what I was going to say earlier. Uh, it, you know, I think part of the, you know, part of the, the, the reason that um, I think traditional media folks are skeptical about metrics and measurement and uh, all of that kind of stuff is because they're worried that, um, you know, if they look at how many hits the like page A17 story on what's going on in Belarus got, um, it's going to be so incredibly depressingly small that it'll be hard for them to kind of make an argument for for why to keep doing that. And um, we feel like that's actually like often the wrong the wrong way to read that data. Um, that it's not you know people aren't interested in what's going on in other parts of the world. It's you're not finding a way to engage people well, um, and so we take that to. Although, to, although really, nobody cares about Belarus. <laughs> I that is the exception. I care deeply about Belarus. <laughs> but but so I think, you know, thinking about sort of are people actually 
into this doesn't mean that you just go you know to whatever topics they seem like they're interested in it means it gives you feedback about like what's are working. you doing it right or are you not and are are you Entertaining, you know, are you... I have a cruder way of thinking about this. I think that one anxiety that a lot of people in traditional media have is that we're learning the truth about what people care about. And the truth is that no one wants to read substantive news. People, you know, they love sports. Uh, they love, you know, celebrity. They love uh, conflict. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they love. And that's the dark truth. And so, yeah, exactly to your point, like, let's conceal this dark truth or let's not acknowledge this dark yeah. truth. And what you're suggesting is that that's not necessarily the dark truth. Yeah, you could no. just be doing a crappy job. Yeah, and I think... I think that there is there is a real likely outcome that sports always wins. That like that the goal is not to compelling. beat out uh, to beat out sports coverage. But mm -hmm. I think that if you're running the A section of the newspaper and you're trying to get attention to these issues, I think you can say, "Oh, we reached this many people this year. Can we reach twice that many next year?" Like it's not like, "Oh, we should stop what we're doing and just cover sports." So in a way, you're educating like, other media organizations. You're not just competing with other media organizations. You're trying to find a way to teach them. Hey, there's a way to tell meaningful stories in a compelling way. I mean, I we're, mean we're just trying to prove that the audience is there. I mean, I think from that, everything else follows. But if you can actually demonstrate, like, look, you know, uh, four million people just watched this dense video about uh, income inequality in America. Therefore, it's not that there's no interest there, it's not that people don't care about that issue. It's that um, maybe you're not talking about it in, a, in, in the most compelling way. Like, I think that's, that's the exciting thing. It's that um, I think if you can actually talk about uh, important topics in a compelling way, there are tons of people who want to be good citizens and want to tune into this stuff and want to um, understand you know, how the healthcare system works. And uh, you know, we need to do a better job of feeding that. Do you see yourselves ever producing your own original content? Or, or do you think that you know, your goal is to surface content that's being created by people across the world and that that's what you ought to focus on? When we started, we just, uh, we had the sense that nobody was sitting around saying what the internet needs is a whole bunch more content. Uh, that wasn't like the number one problem we were trying to solve. Um, so we started from let's find the best of the best stuff and help it reach an audience. There's so many great things out there that are just languishing, uh, that are really excellent pieces of media that nobody's ever seen or 5,000 people have seen. So that's where we started. I think uh, eventually we will have a really clear sense of here is where there is really great media to unearth and here are the issues or the topics or the types of stories that that nobody's really doing, and we looked everywhere and we couldn't find them. And I think when we when we find those and get a little more clarity on that, I think we'll be interested in making some of our own as well. Um, we're not rushing to it. We we keep we're a tiny startup, and so we're trying to put that off kind of as long as we can. But uh, I think when we see real voids, we'll be uh, we'll explore filling them. Yeah, we look a lot at at kind of the Netflix strategy. You know, how how do you First, you know, kind of get a lot of a sense of what people are interested in, and, and uh, you know, what are they, what are they responding to, and then use that to figure out like how do you how do you make like a, you know, House of Cards or Orange is the New Black, <laughs> just something little like that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Peter and Eli. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so Thank much. You. This is great. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.